0: Good morning. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Acts chapter 18 is a roller coaster ride of ups and downs, isn't it? At times, Paul's ministry is wildly successful. And at other times, it seems like his very life is hanging in the balance. When I read this passage to my wife a few nights ago, her first reaction to it was to say, Paul is unstoppable. And the whole church in the book of Acts is unstoppable. The Lord Jesus had promised that they would be the witnesses of his kingdom all over the world. Yes, they would suffer. Yes, they would at times encounter enormous amounts of difficulty and trial. But in the end, they would succeed. And nothing would prevent them from fulfilling their calling. The church is still unstoppable. And so is everyone who belongs to it. Not because of any superhuman strength or resolve. Not because of any superior intelligence or talents. No, the church is unstoppable because the Lord Jesus is with us. He has given us His Spirit. He has made us the witnesses of His death and resurrection. He has given us the great privilege of leading others out of darkness and into the light of His kingdom. And yes, we may suffer. No doubt some of you in this very room are suffering right now in various ways, and it's hard, and we're praying for you. But what I want us to see this morning through the life of Paul is that when Jesus is with us, Nothing can prevent us from fulfilling our calling. Please keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 18. And let's look together at how Jesus was with Paul in the city of Corinth. First in verses 1 through 8, we notice that Paul is still, after all this time, devoted to the ministry. Luke tells us in the opening verse that Paul has come to Corinth from Athens, and you may recall from Aubrey's sermon two weeks ago how Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection to the Areopagus, and how his message received mixed reviews. Some believed, others mocked, and still others remained undecided. But now Paul is back on his feet, raring to go, entering a new city with new challenges. Now, if Athens was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, then Corinth was a great commercial center. Its location on an isthmus gave it access to two seaports, one on the east and one on the west, and to two overland trade routes going both north and south. So Corinth was, was this great intersection of Greco-Roman culture, a, a world-famous emporium, really. But Corinth was also a city, some of you know this, of unrivaled sexual immorality. Nearly 2,000 feet above its skyline stood the impressive Acrocorinth, with the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, whom the Corinthians were very happy to worship in all sorts of ways at all hours of the day and night. How would you feel if you were called the Corinth? We don't have to guess about how Paul felt. He was afraid. In fact, he would later write to the Corinthian church and admit that he first came to them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. But God is with Paul. And isn't it interesting to see that the first thing God gives to Paul in a new city is friends. What a gift, right? Here's Paul. He's alone in a new city. God sees his loneliness and gives him these great friends. And by the way, that's what God has done for my family and me. Here we are in a new city. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. But God gave us just what we need. He gave us four coupons to Klein's. (laughs) No, he gave us you. He gave us such wonderful friends in you, incarnation. Incarnation. And we're so grateful to be a part of your family. God provides Paul with Aquila and Priscilla. And this couple would end up becoming very dear friends of Paul. They would join him in his travels. They would end up housing the church at Ephesus, it appears. And they would even help Apollos in his teaching, as we just heard near the end of our reading. So Paul partners with them. He stays with them. He works with them. He's making tents. Uh, now some scholars think it was more like leather working, but whatever it is, it's this is hard manual labor with long hours and high demands. And then what, what is Paul doing on the Sabbath? Luke tells us in verse four, he, he's reasoning in the synagogue. How often? Every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is Paul's lifestyle in Corinth. It's pretty unsustainable, it seems, right? It's a lot of work. It sounds exhausting. Working with your hands for six days a week, and then preaching on weekends. So we must have been relieved when Silas and Timothy came to him. Do you see that in verse 5? This verse is a bit tricky, In its reading, the ESV says that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. But I believe the better reading would be something like when Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul was able to be occupied with the word. So we have a change in Paul's lifestyle here as a result of Silas and Timothy's arrival. It appears that these two co-workers brought not only encouragement to Paul, but also a substantial monetary gift that allowed him to quit his day job and give his full time to the ministry of the Word. So as my old mentor would say, now we're cooking with gas here, right? God has given Paul all he needs. He's got the friends. He's got the funds. He even has some extra help with Silas and Timothy now so that... Paul is able to spend all of his time, verse 5, testifying, and that would be from both Scripture and from personal experience, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul shows us what it looks like to work hard in the ministry, have you ever wanted something so badly that you were willing to take up a second job to get it? I was talking to Sloan this morning right after he scared the daylights out of me on my way walking here. And he told me that he's, uh, he's saving up for a new bike that costs $8,000. And I asked him how much he had saved, and he said he still had 8000 to go. <laughs> um, I thought that kind of served him right for scaring me like he did. But I know some of you who are already working long hours, already working two jobs. And that's a lot like what Paul was doing here before Silas and Timothy arrived. But why did he do it? What did he want? He wanted his fellow Jews to know the Lord Jesus He wanted it so badly. He would later tell the Corinthians in a letter that he worked harder than all the apostles when he was with them. And you can kind of see that here, can't you? And that he became all things to all people. That is, he did everything in his power so that he might save some. That was Paul's heart. He wanted to see his own people come to know their Messiah, their true king. I wonder, do we have that heart for the people in this city? Do we have that heart for the people in our workplaces? It's not a question to make you feel guilty, because if you don't, just ask God to give it to you. Just ask him to give you that heart. He'll give it. But how do the Jews respond to Paul's gospel? Well, they oppose him, don't they? Right on schedule. We've seen this before with Paul. Everywhere Paul goes, he uses the same method. He preaches the same message. And every time he seems to get the same result. Opposition. And the opposition seems to be pretty fierce in this case. Luke says that the Jews not only oppose Paul, but revile him. And that word revile is the same Greek word for the word blasphemy. So the Jews are cursing Paul. But sadly, in cursing Paul, they're really cursing God, aren't they? And that's a terrifying thought. Now, Paul will very often continue to minister to people who don't believe his message. No big deal. No big deal. You don't believe. But this is not disbelief. This is disrespect. In fact, today we might even call this something like verbal abuse. So what does Paul say? (laughs) Get ready. He says, your blood be on your own heads. Pretty jarring. Suit yourself. I've said my piece. Now I'm leaving the responsibility with you. And he leaves the synagogue and begins ministering to the Gentiles. But he doesn't go far, does he? He goes right next door. Paul's really living on the edge here. Now, Paul is certainly being uh, intentionally provocative by moving next door. That's true. But he's also showing the Jews that he's not given up on them. He hadn't left town. It's just down the street, wasn't he? And we should have that same attitude when we're rejected. When people reject us, we don't write them off completely. We don't egg their house. We don't key their car. No, we continue to love them and to pray for them and perhaps at times make ourselves available to them once again. So God gives Paul... A wildly successful ministry in the home of Titius Justus, this worshiper of God. Luke tells us that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to faith along with his entire household. And then many Corinthians, Luke says, many Corinthians come to faith as well. Wild success. Like I said, Acts 18 is a roller coaster ride. Now, in this next section, verses 9 through 11, it appears that Paul is afraid. A- and we know that he's afraid because Jesus comes to him in a vision and says, don't be afraid. Uh, in fact, some translations will say, don't be afraid any longer. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Jesus promises to protect Paul in a very unique way. But let's talk about the vision itself first. This is a really big deal, this vision. We we haven't, you know, we've seen, we've heard about Jesus throughout the past several chapters of the book of Acts, but we haven't actually seen Jesus in the narrative of Acts since chapter 10. And that was when he was telling Peter to shift his whole paradigm and to start preaching this message to a Gentile. So this is a really big deal for Jesus to show himself in such a personal and special way. Paul must have really been afraid, on, on the verge of leaving even. Why is Paul so afraid? Why is Paul so afraid? His ministry to the Gentiles is flourishing. Well, yeah, but his success is turning the Jews in the synagogue into an angry wild hornet's nest. And with every new convert to Christianity comes a greater likelihood that Paul is about to get the pulp beat out of him. Again. And that's something we need to think about for a minute. It might sound obvious, but Paul didn't like getting beat up. (laughs) He's not Jason Bourne, invincible after like seven car crashes. It's not like Paul developed an immunity to getting beat up. No, it, it kept hurting. In fact, it probably hurt worse and worse each time. Paul doesn't want to get beat up again. He's afraid, just like you and I would be. We have an enemy. We have a common enemy who is evil to the core. And he puts fear into our hearts. And while we may not fear getting beat up for sharing the gospel, we very well may fear other things like rejection, or failure or looking ignorant or being labeled as a fundamentalist or losing a friend or even like Aubrey mentioned a few weeks ago losing a job. The truth is if our enemy can put any fear in our hearts that will keep us from leading people to Jesus he's going to do it. Ten times out of ten, he's going to do it. And the only way to counter him is to keep speaking. And isn't that what Jesus asked Paul to do? Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Open your mouth. We worry too much about what we're going to say, don't we? We we plan our conversations like a like a general plans his attacks. But if Jesus asks us to open our mouths, shouldn't we just trust him? That he's going to give us the words that we need to say? And he'll give us the courage, too, if we just ask him. Again, just ask him. But you know what the sweetest part of this vision is? It's, It's when... Jesus tells Paul that he is with him. And that is the best promise in the whole Bible. It's what the word Emmanuel means, right? God is with us. The Lord Jesus is with us wherever we go. You remember our scripture reading from Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah to speak. He's afraid. He says, I'm too young. And God says, I'm with you. And then our gospel reading from Matthew Jesus tells his his apostles to go and make disciples. I'm with you. I'm with you always, forever. But here's an important point of this vision. Jesus makes a promise to Paul that nobody is going to hurt him. And that's unique, isn't it? He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Just stay put, Paul, and I will protect you. Now, he didn't always get that promise, right? Stoned at Lystra. But Luke tells us that Paul stays in Corinth for a year and six months, 18 months teaching the word. Now, this next section, verses 12 through 17, this is really remarkable because it shows us how Jesus keeps his promise to Paul. It starts out with a bit of a surprise. You know, the last thing we heard about Paul is that he was going to be protected by the Lord Jesus. But then we read in verse 12 that the Jews make a united attack on him, presumably after these 18 months have gone by. Now, Paul isn't harmed, but we're still getting a little bit uncomfortable, aren't we? We're like, but you said. The Jews then begin to press charges against Paul. In verse 13, they tell the proconsul, sort of like the governor, Gallio, that Paul is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what is this all about? Well, it requires just, just a little bit of history, so with me. One of my college professors used to say over and over and over again that when the Romans conquered you, they really only wanted two things, tribute and peace and quiet. Do this and you will live, right? Tribute, peace and quiet. But the Jews proved to be an anomaly. And the Romans found out the hard way that it was extremely difficult to keep the Jews quiet when you took away their culture and forced them to pray to the emperor. They didn't like that. So the Romans made a deal with the Jews. If the Jews would pay their tribute in full and on time, we want our tribute, then the Romans would not require them to pray to the emperor just for him. Fair enough. And on top of that, if the Jews behaved themselves, so no riots, no takeovers, no Maccabean revolts or anything like that, then the Romans would allow them to worship their God according to the law of Moses. Deal? Deal. But then Paul, but then Paul, he starts preaching Jesus in the synagogues and when the synagogues get mad enough and kick him out he starts preaching to the gentiles and and then the jews get really mad and riot so you see the problem here so what do the jews do they tell gallio that paul is not really a jew that he's an unwanted intruder They say that Paul is persuading their fellow Jews to worship Jesus and that this practice of worshiping Jesus is not true Judaism. Conclusion, Paul is persuading people to worship illegally and he should be punished by Rome as an insurrectionist. But right when Paul is about to make his defense uh, Gallio cuts him off, doesn't he? There's a higher power at work here. And what does Galio say to the Jews? Go away! I don't want to hear any more of your petty religious debates. Scram! But Gallio does not realize what he has just done. <laughs> not only has he been the human instrument through which Paul was protected by Jesus, right? But also, by refusing to condemn Paul, (laughs) he has declared Christianity to be legal in Achaia. God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. He kept them to Paul, he keeps them to his church, and he will keep them to you. You can trust him. Our final section that we'll cover this morning is verses 18 through 23. And it shows Paul once again devoted to the ministry. He's still devoted to the ministry. He's traveling everywhere. He's telling everybody about Jesus. And verse 23, strengthening all the disciples. Paul is the unstoppable apostle. He refuses to give up on the calling he received on the Damascus Road. Remember, many of his Jewish friends would have turned against him because of his new faith. Anyone relate to that? Many of those he attempted to share the gospel with refused to hear him, but he refused to give up. Who is there in your life Really simple question. Who is there in your life who needs to hear about Jesus? Is it a parent? Or a sibling? Or a roommate? Or a best friend? Who is there in your life who is struggling in their faith because they're being challenged by today's culture? Don't listen to your fears. Listen to Jesus. He's asking you to open your mouth, to keep speaking, to not be silent. And he's promising you that he will be with you. Whoever you are with, wherever you go, he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.